Hi, and welcome to OnCourse, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the stories of visionary leaders advancing equity and justice worldwide. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in emerging leaders with the best and the boldest ideas for transforming the world, providing fellowship, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. This season of Encores features Echoing Green Fellows in dialogue with each other about the joy, creativity, successes, and challenges of working to transform systems for the better and for the long haul. Highlighting stories and advice from the moment these leaders decided to act, Encores explores our collective visions for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. Today's episode of Encores features Raina Montoya and Swapna Reddy. They both received the Echoing Green Fellowship in 2017. Raina is the founder and executive director of Aliento, a community organization investing in the well-being, emotional healing, and leadership development of those who are negatively impacted as a result of their immigration status in the U.S. Swapna is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, or ASAP. ASAP is a membership-based organization comprised of more than 150,000 asylum seekers working to build a more humane asylum system in the U.S. From their personal experiences navigating the systems they're tackling professionally to the ways institutions politicize immigrant experiences, Reina and Swapna discuss what it takes for immigrant and asylum-seeking communities to thrive regardless of their legal status. Hi, Swapna. It's so good to see you and hear you. It's been uh, a little while since we have connected in audio. I know that I text you almost every time, but maybe let's get started with sharing a little bit about like who you are, any titles that carry a specific meaning to you. I know you're super awesome, but maybe for our audience who's listening out that they don't know your awesome self, can you share a little bit about you? Sure. Um, well, my name is Swapna Reddy. I am uh, one of the four co-founders and two co-executive directors of the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, or ASAP for short. Um, I don't have a lot of titles otherwise that carry specific meaning for me. Um, but Reina, I'm guessing you do. Um, I'd love to hear you introduce yourself as well. Well, my name is Reina Montoya. I am the founder and CEO at Aliento, which is a nonprofit leadership organization based in Arizona, where we transform trauma into hope and action. And something uh, that carries a lot, of, a lot of meaning for me is that I am a daughter, I am a sister, and I am just a human trying to do the best that I can. So you talked about ASAP, so I'm pretty familiar with ASAP and I feel pretty lucky about that. But can you share a little bit more about what is ASAP, what is its mission and what it stands for? So ASAP is the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. We're a membership organization. Our members are over 230,000 asylum seekers who are now in the United States, uh, but they're people who are coming to the United States from over 185 countries. And what we try to do is just be responsive and provide our members with what they're asking for uh, because they're navigating an incredibly complicated immigration system. A lot of times they are asking for help in understanding the U.S. immigration system, resources that would help them to navigate the system themselves, but they're also asking to change the system. And so other things that we do involve giving members kind of the resources and the tools and the opportunities to be able to advocate to change the system 
either through litigation, press, or policy. Um, but you know, so much of what we do has changed over time as we've learned and made mistakes and also grown to a size bigger than we thought we ever would. And a lot of where we've learned things uh, is from you. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what your organization does. I'm so inspired every time that I hear about the incredible work that you're doing. And I think many people would would just hear the numbers, but they every person, every number is a person and they carry a specific stories and meanings. Speaking of that, uh, a little bit about the work that we do at Aliento. Uh, Aliento translates into breath, but when you give Aliento to someone, it's like giving words of encouragement for my bilingual speakers or those who you, who speak Spanish, shout out to you all. But within that at Aliento, we have a motto that we say that we transform trauma into hope and action. So we work with mixed immigration status families, predominantly young people ages 7 to 24. But anyone who has worked with young people, if we really want to supportive and really support their leadership we know we have to serve a whole families and communities to making sure that they step into into their power and a lot of the reason why i decided to found aliento it was from my own lived experience of growing up undocumented in a place like arizona where it was very very difficult for the for the immigrant community to thrive and to be accepted and to be welcome and i started organizing when i was in college i had to face a lot of barriers because of my lack of immigration status from from not having access to in-state tuition from having to fight my dad's deportation to constantly having a lot of anxiety and, and stress so so at Aliento, it's really about really grounded in, in that reality that undocumented communities and mixed immigration status families are not only are not only facing hardship, but we have so much hope and so much potential and we're multifaceted individuals. So what would it look like for us to believe in, in our immigrant community and to nurture their success for them to thrive regardless of their immigration status? So we do a lot of healing initiatives around mental health, leadership development. And we also say that it is not enough to only support families that are going through a lot of hardships, but how do we make sure that we're changing the systems and the structures that are creating trauma? in the first place um so that's a huge like overlap that i see between our work even though that asylum seekers are very different than mixed mixed immigration status families um do you see any other la overlaps between our work or anything that uh, that you have seen that would be helpful for for folks listening to understand a little bit deeper yeah i mean i think that at the end of the day asylum seeker is also like a legal definition that like may or may not kind of relate to how somebody views themselves or how they want to identify. I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, going back to the first question about uh, what are some titles that carry specific meaning to you? Like it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily important to our members that they are asylum seekers or not, or that that's a way that they're uh, kind of referred to. And so I'll just say that I think our communities can be different. They can also be the same. Uh, it's just kind of like people who are looking for some basic dignity and respect and ability to live in the United States. They're human beings, right? And sometimes between legal terms, uh, political rhetoric, and the pluralization that we see in our society, we tend to forget that we're talking about human beings that um, had to make a very courageous decision to leave the country that they that they knew for very different circumstances. Sometimes it's, it's because escaping uh, poverty sometimes is escaping deep violence, like my dad, who was 
who was a victim uh, of a kidnap in Mexico. And some of them are just seeking their dreams, right? I think that there's also another concept that I know you and I don't interact a lot, but it's like <laughs> there's other folks that migrate because they, they want to come to a school or a program that they really want or they have a dream of living in a specific city. So definitely migration uh, has become very complex because sometimes the government refuses to see people just as who they are, just people and human beings trying to do the best that they can with the resources that they have. What are some of the kind of key, maybe positive memories you have or negative um, that led you to decide to start your own organization? Oh, that's, that's such a complicated question for me <laughs> because I wish I could say that there was like, one moment, right? But I would say that it was more a compilation of moments of constantly feeling that sense of anger. I think that a lot of my decisions at a young age, I found that Aliento when I was 25, because I was really angry. I was angry about the way that people were treating immigrants. I had been doing community organizing since my late teens at, at school and something that, that I kept seeing as a pattern. I kept seeing as a pattern that that many people wanted my story and they wanted me to share about how I was a dreamer or an undocumented student. And they wanted to hear that story and use it for their own political gain. And yet, whenever I would provide a solution or my strategy, they never wanted to hear it. They were like, no, we know what we're doing. We uh, it just stay to stick to your lane. Right. And then there was this one particular moment after constantly feeling this uh, I call it now compounded trauma, right? Like when you have to constantly face that, yeah, they want a certain part of yourself, but they don't want your whole self. It can be very traumatic and very disempowering. So there was one time that I remember I was translating and interpreting for for a specific event. And this was way before Aliento. I was actually a classroom teacher at that time. And I remember that there was a lot of undocumented community talking about the deep pains of, of living undocumented in Arizona and all the injustices that they had to face. And I remember being at that event translating for moms, for fathers, for children. And I remember the, feeling the energy so heavy and, and thinking to myself, People are coming in, sharing the deepest traumas, and they're living angry. And I think it was that moment that I didn't want to be angry anymore. And I, and I wanted to make sure that, that we were reminded that at the end of the day, like we are deserving of healing and we are deserving of a different alternative where we can not only be storytellers, but we can be the strategists of our lives and provide uh, a different alternative with immigrants can be seen with dignity and respect and be nurtured and, and respected rather than constantly be used either for a political agenda to create fear and division or to just get a specific electorate without getting any results. So that was a long story and I'm getting a little emotional because I think for me it has been that those little moments that have really led me to to stay in this in this very uh, difficult work when you get to experience so much pain but then yet you get to experience so much strength yeah. and power. That How about you? What was what led you to <laughs> to ASAP? I mean you have like it's four of you, right? Like four co-founders. That's incredible. <laughs> it is uh, It is incredible from a sustainability perspective. They're also just some of my closest friends. 
I will just say, just uh, reflecting on your story, that that's actually one of the quotes, something I quote you on constantly uh, in conversations is kind of your point to that uh, people who are impacted by the immigration system are not just like experts in the harm, but they're experts in the solution as well. Um, uh, sorry, I'm getting emotional too, listening to you talk. I think, you know, what makes me passionate about immigration is just that I'm the child of immigrants and my parents didn't always have the easiest time uh, getting like a life started in the United States. I have three siblings and my parents couldn't always afford to have us all in the United States together. And so mm -hmm. my younger brothers and I have been kind of like separated by continents at times and in a way that I think has kind of defined everything about how I understand the world and opportunity. Like my earliest memories have been memories of kind of feeling a relative privilege of having gotten to be in the United States with my parents uh, when my younger brothers did not. So I think it's just so fundamental to my to my worldview <laughs> that immigration is just like this massive privilege you can have or can't have that can fundamentally change the course of your life and all of the opportunities you have. You know, when I was in law school, along with uh, my three co-founders, we traveled to volunteer just for a week in the, the Dilly Family Detention Center, which was then the biggest immigration de detention center in the U.S. It was built to hold 2,400 women and children at once. It was obviously just an absurdly inhumane place. And we went down to volunteer and a woman who had been detained with her then seven-year-old for over four months was being forced to go to trial. Her name was Suni Rodriguez. And it was just like the greatest fortune of our life that she happened to be going to trial that week and we got to meet her. We ended up helping her with her immigration trial. We represented her that week and she was able to win her case. And at the end of that week, you know, she was released from detention. And whereas almost anyone would be like, you know, after being detained with your kid uh, for more than four months would kind of want to just leave and put it behind them, she just immediately started asking us what would happen to the other women who were having to go to trial in the weeks following and kind of what could we do? Because as far as she had seen, she had been an organizer in the detention center and she had gotten to know a lot of the women and they had been organizing around asking for better conditions. And so she organized, you know, she was an organizer and she advocated collectively for us to try to find ways to continue to provide legal services to the other women who were going to be forced to go to trial. And we listened. Uh, we did represent everyone or make sure that everybody after that in the detention center had representation and they were all able to win their cases. There never was a moment at which we decided we should start an organization, but because of SUNY, we decided to do this work. And once it got big enough, we realized it was an organization. So that's what brought us to today. Wow, that's so powerful. Shout out to Suni. Yeah, I know. We're still we're still in touch with her. Um, and she, she continues to lead a lot of good decisions at ASAP. So. This is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. We'll be back with more stories, advice, and reflections after a short break. On Course is presented with support from the City Foundation, which works to promote economic progress in communities around the world. Since 2018, Echoing Green and the City Foundation have worked together to build a more inclusive social entrepreneurship sector by supporting emerging innovators of color who are accelerating progress and transformation across the United States. 
Together, we are taking action to advance racial equity and help next generation leaders access their resources, networks, and support they need to increase social inclusion in their communities and help close the racial wealth gap. Welcome back, this is On Course. You're listening to founders and fellows, Raina Montoya and Swapna Reddy. I'm curious to hear what one early challenge was. I know those were kind of like how we started down this path of founding Aliento and ASAP, but I'm curious to hear if you have any kind of specific recollections, maybe first of kind of an early challenge you had to overcome uh, just in founding Aliento, the organization, and also a success. Oh, that's a good question. Very similar to you, my my dream was never intended to found an organization. I was actually very reluctant to do that. And I remember that one of the earliest challenge came around funding. I didn't know how to make a budget and do this whole fundraising and how to present it. And I remember being very intimidated by that aspect, especially with something that is so deeply personal to me about my own traumas and my own ways of of moving and learning in the world. Uh, But for me, I would say that something that that really hurt and that was a personal challenge was one time I was applying for this funding and I remember that that someone bluntly asked me uh, what would happen to Aliento if I were to be deported and and that was very heavy It, it felt very personal because it was personal but I think that it 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 was challenging not necessarily because it was so personal and then I felt that that they were going to a place of a lot of pain but it was difficult to hear that because even the people that you think that would back you up they still don't understand the depths of asking such a question or the deep fear and uncertainty undocumented communities live live by every single day and then they really miss the, the mark because this has never been about a specific organization or aliento but it's 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 been about giving the tools to communities to really advocate for themselves and then kind of like on the other side on the other side in terms of the successes i would say that that this memory that i constantly go back to there's like one early success that that I always, that I always hold really deeply in my heart is seeing my sister who at that time was a fifth grader who testified in front of a school board in Mesa Arizona which all the school board members except to one were white and at that time there was a lot of conversation about whether what was going to be the protocol for the school to be engaging with ICE? Because there had been a lot of stories hearing that some teachers had invited ICE agents to read aloud to students as part of like mm-hmm. inviting professionals and, and students crying in the nurses' offices because that was very traumatic to see that there's someone that can separate you from your mom. So seeing my little sister who was born here in the United States addressing a school board member and, and sharing her picture about what family separation does and like putting the question to the board and saying like, hey, you have an opportunity to to ensure that we're not going to school with fear. I feel that that was an early success. That it's like, what would it look like if if we could do that to more to more kids that we listen to to not only their their painful moments but also the great amount of agency that that creates that they can do something about it. That's awesome. That's that's very sweet. 
and impressive. How about you? What are some of your memories about those early challenges and early successes of ASAP? I'm getting so caught up in your stories that it's it's uh, sad when it's my turn to talk. But an early challenge at ASAP, I think, you know, that's actually one thing that really stuck with me from our very first Echo and Green convening. This is both an early challenge and I'm not sure I have like <laughs> learned to solve the problem is just feeling like this kind of imposter syndrome or like the confidence that you're supposed to have to like make the asks of what you need to make the work possible. And I remember at a convening, I believe it was Laura Weedman Powers, who mm. was one of the co-founders of Code 2040, who spoke to us like kind of in our cohort and said something about how at the point at which people apply to Echo and Green, the like women who apply have kind of done like a far greater amount of work relative to the amount of funding they've received. And the men have kind of received just a lot more funding for the same work, which is not really a knock on men as much as just like a reflection of the fact that I think some of us get caught up, hung up in this in this belief that we kind of like need to do the work first and then figure out how to get paid for it, like prove mm -hmm. that we can do the work and that we're worth the funding or something, and then try to get funded kind of after the fact. And I think that that's an, an early challenge of what ASAP experienced, that we were kind of always doing work far out ahead of what our budget was. And, you know, it's been a challenge along the way to figure out how to dial back from like a lot of volunteer and unpaid labor by ourselves and others into a world in which you try to like constrain growth by your ability to like create good jobs. It's complicated. Um, and then I think an early success, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I just feel like maybe like the value of every, any time, like something measurably improves for like any ASAP members. I mean, as we know from like our own families stuff, it's just like an incredibly uh, fulfilling just to even know like there's one family that can work because of stuff that ASAP members have collectively advocated for. Um, because like, that's a lot of the difference between my brothers being able to like live in the United States or not, um, was mm -hmm. just like economic stability. You know, We both said early on, you know, we struggled with budgets. We struggled <laughs> with making some asks with fundraising. I'm curious if you have picked up many tricks now. You said five years later, but it feels like you've been in this game for over a decade um, that have helped you navigate the world of philanthropy, donors, and fundraising. Technically, we're given an opportunity to philanthropy to remedy so much of the damage that they have created as well. And, and then there's good people out there that, that really want to do right to communities uh, that have been harmed. You know, I, I'm a teacher at heart. I was a teacher once and I would always be a teacher that mm -hmm. is like, I, I will walk with you in the journey. If you still might want to learn about the immigrant community, you might not have the right language or the right approach, but you have that curiosity and that humility, like I'll walk with you. There's a big difference between that versus uh, certain funders that are just there uh, for the media hits or they're just there to have Uh, their check mark on their equity and inclusion box. And I think that it's been important for us to understand that, yes, we need the funding to survive and to continue to do our work, but it is important who we are in partnership with. What you were saying really spoke to me. And sometimes it's just as important like the funding you don't go after or that you, you don't try to win as it is the funding that you do. And I think that that can be because of values misalignment like you were talking about, but it can also be about like, kind of like strategic creep or like, you know, things that force you to do certain kinds of programming over others. And I think 
one of the biggest things that we've learned over time at ASAP is to just like, really, if we want to be truly responsive to our members and we want to be able to kind of like change course to reflect what they're asking us for, then we need to seek out funding sources and funders who trust us enough that if our members change course, we can change course for our programming as well. Mm -hmm. And that's not a problem for the funding that we've received or our ability to get future funding. Another thing that we've just realized along the way was that in order to be truly responsive to our members, we have to let our members chart our course and change their minds as human beings and take in different factors of what's happening in the world and then redetermine what they think ASAP should be doing. And that means sometimes we need to tell funders we are planning to do one thing and then shift gears to do another thing in order to follow our members' preferences. And so one thing I think that's been really important, uh, we've realized over time, is to get funders who believe in what we're doing so much that they're willing to invest in the organization and in the concept of member leadership as opposed to specific like courses of programmatic action um, because that's kind of what it takes to be able to actually listen to our members. OnCourse is produced by Echoing Green. Since 1987, the Echoing Green community has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. Echoing Green invests in emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and sets them on a path to lifelong impact. In 2020, we launched our Racial Equity Philanthropic Fund to ensure that the social innovation field takes bold action in the racial justice movement. To join us and support new generations of social impact leaders from all over the world, visit echoinggreen.org. Shifting a little bit of gears, Swapna. Oh, I'm even afraid of asking this question because it's, it's in a it's in a big pickle, I would say. But can you can you share maybe with our audience that are not that don't follow immigration policy and law and culture so closely like us? Can you name a specific trend or innovation in the field that is supporting asylum seekers that either worries you or and maybe another one that excites you or makes you feel uh, really proud? I think one thing that worries me is that it's almost like a desensitization to inhumanity or something. Mm -hmm. I think that, well, first of all, everything that was ever kind of horrifying about the Trump administration happened to some degree during every administration, Democratic and Republican, like preceding it. But I do think that the media coverage and the scale of what was going wrong was so great that the public really started to take notice and started to really care and take action. I mean, there were thousands of people going to airports to try to be helpful um, related to immigration, et cetera. And I just think that now uh, shout out also to another Echoing Green fellow, Becca Heller, for, for IRAP doing a lot of work related to kind of organizing the public around immigration atrocities. But I just think that there's just been such a huge amount of desensitization to the fact that some a lot of the same things are still happening. Mm-hmm. A lot of those policies are still on the books or the current administration is defending a lot of those policies in court. And that means that we're likely headed without action from people like Reina towards a world in which like that's just the new normal and the shock value of things like family separation has passed. And so that's obviously worrisome. What excites me, I think, is that I do think that due to things like 
technology remoteness. I am definitely not like a tech evangelist in general or something, but due to the ability of people to kind of like congregate and organize online and in other ways, I do think that there are becoming these like incredibly sophisticated, connected groups of people, whether they are immigrants who are advocating to change the immigration system or youth advocating to change things about their education systems or, you know, just, I do think that there's just kind of like this massive, sometimes even like international, definitely national organizing that's happening that sometimes gets belittled, I think, by people who like don't understand that social media activism can actually have like real world strong impacts and can connect people and form bonds and make relationships that like will change things. And so I'm, I feel pretty excited about that. I mean, for ASAP specifically, you know, there are now 230,000 asylum seekers who can kind of like collectively decide what the, what changing the asylum system should look like, what should the priorities be, and can kind of work together to change it. And that's pretty amazing because I think that even if many people can get desensitized um, to harm that people feel, rarely can people who've experienced it themselves become desensitized to the harm. And so, you know, I'm just excited that there are larger and larger groups of people who like will continue to fight no matter what. But I'd love to hear, Rena, what you think. And I know you're much more always abreast of immigration policy developments than I am. Honestly, I'm in the same boat as you. I think that you talked about the desensitization that happens within communities. But I mean, I constantly see, I would say, I'm trying not to get angry here. <laughs> but um, but with that, I think that anger, actually anger is not a bad emotion. It's a powerful emotion. And I think that it calls people to action. But at the same time, it can be really tricky and dangerous because it's not sustainable. So when I think about what worries me the most is that the hypocrisy of the duality of of just understanding that that Republicans are bad, Democrats are good. I think that that's so damaging for for the immigrant community because, as you mentioned, I mean that there's there's this lack of awareness that both parties have really harmed the immigrant community. And on the other hand, what gives me a lot of hope is, is as you mentioned, our, our young people are so powerful and they have they have so so much energy and there has been people that have refused to to turn a blind eye and decided that hey, like there's injustices are still happening to the immigrant community. I feel that in a place like Arizona that we were known as the epicenter of hate for the immigrant community, that we saw a huge victory coming out out of the state legislature, whether it was bipartisan more and a lot thanks to our students at Aliento that that continue to advocate regardless of the challenges and we were able to to work with the Arizona State Legislature to refer to the ballot the ability for undocumented students to have in-state tuition in Arizona so I feel that we're seeing that places like Arizona if we work together and we build coalitions and we listen to impacted communities like our undocumented students and dreamers like we can turn that epicenter of hate into an epicenter of hope where lessons can be learned and that we are not giving up regardless of the challenges that we face it really is um Really incredible um, what you all have been able to accomplish in a kind of under-resourced and really tough uh, environment. But it does it does exactly what you're saying. It shows that kind of like that's it, you know it's like the problem is not too big to start solving it like anywhere. Um, so it's pretty amazing. I guess my 
One of my last questions for you is, I'm curious, we may, maybe we have a similar answer, but in a perfect world, uh, if your work was over and your mission was accomplished, what would the world look like to you? Oh, ending with the hard questions, Swapna. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, in an ideal world, is that every single human being uh, will be nurtured and supported by community and not be judged by their immigration status. And there are possibilities and opportunities wouldn't be limited. And more than anything, I would say that we're living in a world where, where we're not numb uh, to each other's suffering. And instead of seeking punishment and more suffering, we are working collectively to uh, to make the world a brighter and better place for for all people regardless of where they were born how about you what would what would a world look like if if you were to accomplish uh, your mission and and be done <laughs> i mean i think this actually goes full circle back to like the the communities we serve are different and aren't you know um i think that i couldn't have stated it better uh the goal you stated i think is exactly what i would be hoping for and is uh, honestly, you've like left me feeling inspired, um, just like listening to you dream about what could be possible. For other people who are listening uh, and feeling inspired uh, by you, Reina, I'm curious um, if you would share how they can learn more about your work. Yeah, if you're feeling inspired and you want to continue to support the immigrant community, I would definitely encourage you and invite you to go and check us on our social medias. We are uh, in Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can go to our website and find all of the social medias there. <laughs> uh, you can go to alientoaz, like Arizona.org. Well, again, aliento, A-L-I-E-N-T-O-A-C.org. There's no small action that, that doesn't help our work from maybe not uh, going to Starbucks once a month and donating $5 to support our students and our families, uh, to just sharing the content about uh, the ongoing changes that happen with immigration or resources for for our communities, uh, for them to thrive. So definitely check us out and and. We're just like really excited to be in community and we're not only in Arizona, we actually have expanded our program in virtually and we have served families and communities across 44 different states and we're just so lucky to, to be part of their journey and always taking Arizona as a huge inspiration that hopefully inspires other folks of turning something so painful into, into a place of hope. Um, but I'm, I know that I was inspired by you. I didn't know about SUNY. I'm going to be praying for SUNY after, after this is over and just sending her a lot of energy. Uh, but how, how can people get connected with ASAP if they're feeling inspired and they want to maybe support your work? How can they, how can they get connected with you all? You can check out our website at asylumadvocacy.org. And like Raina said, if you'd like to connect with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm always thinking we should launch a TikTok account, but we're not there yet. We also we have would... a TikTok. Our young, nice, our young yeah. people I mean, to cover. <laughs> I would I would assume Aliento was ahead of the game as usual in connecting with people on social media. But you know, we'd love for you to to visit asylumadvocacy.org. And especially if you are somebody who is thinking about applying for asylum, not sure if you should apply for asylum or are already in the system, we'd love for you to visit asylumadvocacy.org slash members and fill out an application. It's always just really, really nice to have a reason to talk to you, Reina. Thanks for making time to talk to me today. 
thank you for making time. It's always <laughs> so good to hear your voice. <laughs> This episode was produced by Nicole Hill and Sumia Misra with narration from Jessica Tillman. Thank you to Vincent McNatt, Lindsay Booker, and Alex Silverman for their work on this season. To learn more about Echoing Green, visit echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. This is Echoing Green.